2: This is the Book Riot Podcast, its weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today's Friday, April 7th, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill, joined here by Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from bookriot.com. If you don't have... You're going to get a new episode from us right now, regular episode. We're going to do a Patreon episode recording next, which is um, book club... We still want to talk about adaptations. We did Adaptation Nation. We like doing that. We did this some. We're going to do Moneyball on the occasion of the anniversary. What's the anniversary again? Is it the movie? Is it the book? I've now forgotten why we're doing it. It's the 20th
0: anniversary of the book, and right. baseball season just started.
2: Right. So 20th anniversary of the book. Um, And I just finished reading it last night. I watched it with the family Wednesday night. One of our favorite... Well, anyway, Rebecca and I both really like this whole product <laughs> and what it's about <laughs> and everything else. So you can listen to us on Patreon there. And if that weren't enough, you can also hear us on first edition. The new, the first episode dropped on Wednesday. It's out now. Rebecca and I lead off. There, it's built around segments. So there's a few different segments. But Rebecca and I are in segment one. And we're playing a game I came up with, which I think we're both kicking ourselves. Why didn't we think of this before? I don't know why. <laughs> yes, the yeah. feedback I've gotten in the show already is like, that was my favorite part. I like the interviews and those other things. And I, please do give me feedback at first edition at bookrad.com. But the knockout round was everyone's favorite, in which we look, we're trying to pick the It Book of April. Uh, and the It Book is in quotation marks. I wish I could do hands on the internet show title. Um, and the idea is like, we know kind of what an It Book is, and then what could be the It Book of April? And I came up with a list of 10 finalists. Rebecca knew nothing about that list. And for those of you who listen to the show for a long time, you know how this goes, where I say, Rebecca, what about this one? And then we talk about it. But each time a new book comes into the rink, it has to either knock out or be knocked out by the book. So you're kind of talking about them in conversation with each other all along. And it was really fun. And I think we're going to do it again in May. So go check that out. Um, if you like this show, you're going to like that show. First edition. Everywhere podcasts are. Though maybe not PocketCast. I don't know why there are. Anyway, that's behind the scenes stuff nobody cares about. I'm sorry for those of you listening or trying to listen to PocketCast. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes here as well if you want to make that simple. Saying that. Also, if you want more book write stuff, the Deep Dive, our new newsletter, which is longer form writing in the form of a sub stack, which is email in case you don't know that. It's a free newsletter, but there is a paid tier. So if you just want to sign up and get the free stuff, great, do that. But you can decide you like it. Or you want the other things, you can pay and get additional sends there. Um, go check those things out. I think that is it. I didn't have any listener follow-up this week. And I don't know if the, the, the spam blockers or what was going on, everyone's quiet. Or, as I like to think, we were just right. We just got it all right last week. Yeah, no notes. we
0: were right, and everybody was on spring break. I think it's oh, well. probably that combination. <sighs> yeah.
2: Too bad we were right on the it. week when everyone's out as well, just because more people could hear us be right. It's a real, we should have, we should have really, uh,
0: yeah, I guess the other um, way of thinking about that is that we that. weren't so wrong that someone was willing to like come out of their <laughs> spring break to email us about our wrongness. <laughs>
2: uh, I was scuba diving and listening to the show and I just had to get on a, on a plane to find the internet to email you all. Um, okay, that's it for now. Let's do our first sponsor break and come back into the news of the week.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloane Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate Miss Wong got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my of love through chinese numerology from his uncle so he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life and then he meets reina in 95 and she's like the best she's brilliant charismatic quick-witted funny they fall in love
2: Brandon Sanderson, even as being the most boring writer out there, <laughs> quote-unquote, right? This, this is going back to the Poor next week. Poor Brandon Sanderson. Um, he does have a take, and the take is about Audible, and he's not the only one. Uh, Corey Doctro, who, um, who is also crowdfund- his crowdfunding an audiobook for reasons that are kind of interesting, we might get into them, but there'll be linked link in the show notes there, is taking too big of a cut from indie authors, and... I've long said that if you're going to talk about Amazon as a monopoly in the world of books and reading, I would start with Audible. I wouldn't start with print. You could make a case for that, but if you're going, if you could make a case of print, for print, you can certainly make a case for audio and Audible. And and, and they're using, it. I mean, Rebecca, tell me what you think, but it, Sanderson, I think, makes a pretty compelling case that they're using their near monopoly status to take pretty bad, a pretty significant cut, an unfair cut of um, audio sales. Is that your read of it? Like, where do you come down on the court? Of, what is the court? What does the court of rightness think about this, do you think? Should we get them in session?
0: You know, I think the court of rightness is probably confused about how to respond. My court okay. of rightness is confused about how to respond here. This piece from Axios that's reported by Will Chase, Mixes, not metaphors, but reference that, you know, is Audible, so Audible pays authors 25% royalties on audiobooks, or 40% if you agree to be exclusively available Mm -hmm. on Audible. There's one piece in here that notes that's well below the industry standard of 70% 70 royalties for other digital products like games or apps, but then you get into what are, are audiobooks digital products? (laughs) What are the royalties like yeah. on a print book? Uh, those are pretty low. Uh, what are or the royalties like on, on an ebook mm-hmm. and and how do you class? how should these be classified? That's not the question that will Chase is asking, but it's the question I'm asking. Um, Sanderson decided not to put his latest audiobooks on Audible. He is going to make them available on Speechify and Spotify. He said, Speechify offered him the 70% royalty. The deal he has with Spotify is behind an NDA, but he says they treated him well. I do think this is low. I think some of it comes, maybe a large part of it comes from, how do we classify these things? Because brick and mortar stores take about 50% on a retail product. Mm-hmm. So that's still not as good of a deal as what Audible is offering folks. But is this a just a retail product? Is it? A digital product—is it like a book? Is this is getting an audiobook kind of like buying music online? What we know, like royalties on that are notoriously mm-hmm. bad. bad. So finding the right analogy for this tricky product, and then figuring out how to make. The payment better i think is a two-step process like I, I would i think the court of rightness would agree that this is low and that it does make it difficult especially for indie authors to get their products out there the thing that i think sanderson is missing is that even if audibles terms become better the thing he's talking about of like stepping outside of the audible ecosystem and trying to compete by just going elsewhere is really right now only possible if you have the crowd to crowdfund something. That's the thing that Sanderson and Cory Doctorow have in common, is they're both saying, I'm not putting books on Audible. They do have different reasons, and those are worth reading about, even if we don't get into the details of them here. So I kickstarted my latest thing and I'm going to make it available on some places that aren't audible for people who weren't part of the Kickstarter, but to like, to have success on a Kickstarter, you've got to have a big enough audience of your Mm -hmm. own that you can create your own discoverability. And that is the thing that audible can offer to people who don't have the big enough audience to just do it themselves or people who are like passionately enough interested (laughs) in their product to just follow them and participate in a Kickstarter. They want it to be available. You know, most readers of most things or most listeners of most audiobooks want those to be available in an ecosystem they're already a part of um, rather than having to, like, you know, create a new account and do a whole thing for a Kickstarter. It's, It's interesting to see. I wonder if difficulty deciding how to classify audiobooks is a part of why we haven't seen... Some sort of action around monopolies mm-hmm. for this. It does seem like bigger players are getting involved in pushing back. But the fact that to be big enough to push back, you have to be so big that you can do a like, multi-million dollar Kickstarter Yeah, is both, I think, a symptom of the problem and even a part of what makes the system broken.
2: I checked in with the Court of Rightness, but unfortunately, they're on a luxury yacht cruise <laughs> that they do every few months. I didn't know this was a thing that they did, so we're going to have to wait for them to get – apparently, it's not against the law. They can, they can just take okay. um, vacations from billionaires from time to time, so we'll have to get back to them on that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's – maybe if we split the issue a little bit and just look at the Audible take by itself, I think it's reasonable for Audible to say, we'll give you a little bonus if you just go exclusive with us. Take, taking sure. the percentage that that's that's a nice business move right um that that makes sense It's sense to do that I think that the seventy percent makes a ton of sense because I think audiobooks are like apps and games they're a digital mm-hmm. product like a bookstore carrying a physical book and getting a fifty percent they 've got to pay rent they 've got to do all this stuff they go they got shipping back and forth and it's just there's a lot of physical things that go into that, that make the cost of carrying that a lot higher. And that only gets you to 50%. So that's already higher than what Audible offers for anything, right? I mean, that that's so that's step zero. The next one is that 70%, I think, again, in the court of public opinion, I don't know how this is going to play, but Apple takes 30% mm-hmm. of like an app purchase, right? And developers squawk about that. They're not happy they with do. that. So... To me, that suggests that we're well below what the kind of extant example—I guess he's getting to Yes Terms' external principle is around digital products, because these are just on servers, right? These are these are this is data on servers, and they deserve Audible and Apple and all these places deserve some cut for providing the service, because as you find out in the Cory Doctorow piece, and I read his piece about his Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. There's also, it's also interesting that Sanderson, who lives in a supervillain lair, still has to go to third parties to deal with audiobooks, right? Because audiobooks mm-hmm. are hard to distribute because you can't email them to people because the file sizes are too big. Right. That's what this all comes down to. If Sanderson it could does. email them a link with an MP3, or MP3, he would, but he can't, so he has to go through all these hoops. It's kind of weird that like, there's also this techno- there's these technological handcuffs that even Sanderson, who does 75 million, he still has to go through. What is Speechify. Why is he even dealing with someone called Speechify? Because he has to. Because the tech is just unwieldy in a way Mm -hmm. that an ebook is, even a print book. He's in. He can have a thing printed and then sent. What's he going to do? Like email people USB USB keys that they can't plug into their phone? Like it's amazingly hard to get an audiobook size file to someone's phone Mm -hmm. without using one of these platforms. And that's the thing that really struck me in reading the doctor ones. Like doctors, like I've got to break it up into seventy two zip files. Like what are we doing? (laughs) What are we doing here?
0: Completely really strange. Yeah, I think Sanderson has the stronger take of the two of them here and they are yeah. so they are worth putting side by side I would like I think his argument is stronger if he picks one analogy and I agree with you that the most appropriate one here is that this is a digital product how do we yeah. treat it like other digital products stop mixing in your references to what brick and mortar stores pay and then what happens in other areas right. like pick the one this is the strongest analogy focus there and then also start to understand what the competitors are. I think Sanderson is wrong that Spotify is a presents strong competition to Audible. He makes a case uh, to this Axios reporter that he, you know, thinks that Spotify that that Audible perceives Spotify mm-hmm. as a threat. And you know, we talked maybe a month or so ago about how some early returns on or maybe the lack thereof <laughs> uh, lack of returns on what's going on with audiobooks at Spotify shows that's really not. Uh, yeah. Not being adopted very well. He also has some st- a statement in here about how there's really no alternative uh, to Audible, and that huh, other what companies. What do we call that,
2: Rebecca? When there's no alternative, <laughs> is there like a? Is there like a? Like a, a, a economic yes. term, for there, when there there is term. one. There except really should not, be. Maybe the Germans He's not totally have one. right
0: know. here. He right. says there are other companies where you can where that will buy your book, but they all just list on Audible and take a percentage on top of what Audible is taking. Now that's not accurate. Like we know Libro FM yeah. is an option. Audiobooks.com is an option. There are a few more. Those are very small percentages of the pie, but they are not. In bed with Audible in any way, or like listing through Audible. Libro is independent. They stand to compete like very vocally and intentionally with mm-hmm. Audible and have partnerships with independent bookstores. And I think that's an avenue of partnership for Sanderson. His his argument here is still strong that yeah. this is too this, you know, royalty to authors is too low and it needs to be brought in line with something else. And so I think they need to agree on what the something else is. I think it should be digital products and he i would like to see him acknowledge that there are some other venues like i, I don't know if he talked with libro if his book is going to be listed there i don't know what their royalty setup is yeah. for authors um how that compares to spotify and speechify whatever else he got but it doesn't weaken your argument if, to say there are some alternatives they're just not big ones this statement that there are no competitors
2: isn't full well, trail. I mean, I guess it how how much of adjective policing do we want to do? Because he says serious competitors. And if you add that, I think I would agree with, I agree with you and Sanderson, but whether or not we take in the <laughs> adjective or not. Because I don't think Libro is a competitor, and it's a good alternative for a listener who's plugged into this kind of thing. But as a serious competitor to Audible, I don't really see it. And it feels to me like Sanderson's trying to use this moment, his platform to move the needle, right? To say, mm-hmm. we need to get out of this monopoly situation. Let's get into a healthy Coke versus Pepsi um, duopoly here, where they're at <laughs> least competing with each other, right? Because yeah, that is, it's- you, you know, usually a duopoly, again, capitalism, blah, blah, blah. But a duopoly is way better than monopoly. It's probably worse than a real diverse ecosystem of vendors and retailers. But a, a healthy duopoly when really people have a real choice and they need to compete for that. That's when you get the monopoly torn down. So I don't think mm-hmm. Sanderson throwing his weight behind Libro FM really helps that. I don't know that this does either. He's just one guy. But hey, we're yeah. talking about it. I mean, I, mean, we are. And I, mean, I indicative guess indicative of something.
0: My response there is I don't think him throwing his weight behind Speechify, whatever that is, and Spotify you know, helps Maybe. either. Um
2: Why not both? Why not throw it on Libro too? It seems that'd be curious to hear what Libro say. Yeah, we'll give you 60%. What does Libro take? Great question. Yeah,
0: I wonder about that. And I also wonder how this is muddied by the fact that his most diehard fans have already contributed to the Kickstarter and will get their audiobooks through whatever distribution channel he's using to to do that. It seems to me that if you have the the literal crowd (laughs) that Sanderson has to have crowdfunded a $42 million Kickstarter, if you directed that audience and energy at, I am something like what Cory Doctorow is doing, or I'm mm. making my audiobooks exclusively exclusively available on these platforms that are not audible, you would have a bigger chance of shifting, you know, what the crowd does in their purchasing patterns. And for someone as popular as Sanderson, that could make an impact.
2: Yeah it seems to me there's a business opportunity here somewhere and again it wouldn't be spotify or whatever size but an audiobook distribution platform that's super lightweight for people mm-hmm. like authors to make their books available take 10 if you took 10% of brandon sanderson's 14.99 you're taking a dollar 50 per per sale for data service i mean i know there's other things that go into it or even 20% you'd still be the best deal and they could point to you and that becomes like bookshop.org for audiobooks there i just solved it let's go <laughs> let's go sanderson I mean,
0: bookshop.org is working on that
2: well i mean maybe they should i mean th- it makes it makes a ton of sense i i, I really i like it cuz here's the thing sanderson is going to lose money by doing this if he had just put on mm-hmm. audible like everybody else because that's where the volume he'd make it up in volume by taking less of a cut but he's Voting with opportunity cost, also a wonderful show title, by putting it these other places and making a stink about it. Because to get the ball rolling, you need the ball to start rolling. Um, You need some snow to accumulate around. He's got to be the pebble and other people to get on board. Maybe some other people will look at it. Um, As a consumer, there's not a whole lot to do, I guess, other than if you can not go to Audible, right, and sort of tell people. I don't even know. As a consumer, like, this is one of those situations. Like, this is so beyond the role of individual consumers. Like, these are are forces of the book-selling universe. Um, You'd need a publisher. You would need a distributor. You would need... It's a, Sanderson Sanderson can carry the banner, but he can't carry all the swords and shields. Um, some people. It's
0: football. a systemic problem that needs a solution from yeah. inside the system, or that needs significant pushback from inside mm-hmm. the system. And Brandon Sanderson is like he's very bold and i think this is you know wise and to be commended for like going out first (laughs) or being one of the first to do this because he can absorb this kind of hit he is going to lose money he's willing to lose money to fight this battle and there are i think the internet is populated with indie authors who are like I don't want to be stuck in Audible and with these deals, but if I don't put my book on Audible, I won't sell any books at all. And they're hamstrung. And that is also part of the problem with the monopoly. So you need somebody who is willing to take the loss and go out first to fight this battle. But it really cannot be a hand. There's only a handful of authors who are as big as Sanderson is and who have that kind of economic power in the system that we have. So it can't be, we can't be relying on authors to move this. And we really, as you were saying, can't be relying on readers. To move this, messaging for that like, would also be virtually impossible to get enough like mainstream people who listen to audiobooks to care enough about it to shift away from Audible. This has to come from publishers, maybe from agents, from some sort of movement inside the industry that refuses to accept these terms in a large enough way that Audible is forced to reconsider the terms.
2: Um, the doctoral piece is a little more nuts and bolts about like let's say you ran a two hundred and seventy six thousand dollar Kickstarter campaign for an audiobook just to pick a number at some that, that's actually the number <laughs> mm-hmm. that's here. And talking about how just the logistics, like digital logistics we feel like are essentially frictionless or like that's a common misconception about how this goes. Yeah. This is a mess. It's a huge mess. It's Mm -hmm. a huge mess. That's what I've got to say. I think if you're interested in the nuts and bolts, I kind of told you my takeaway here. about It's really about file size. We can't email it to people. And even, as we all know, if you've got an iPhone or Android, which, frankly, if you have a smartphone, most of us do. I don't even know what the other choice is. You can have a Samsung with Android on it. If you're out there rocking a BlackBerry, kudos to you. Um, I'm sure you're beaming this in from your hi-fi system you have uh, installed on your ceiling Side loading media is actually hard. Someone sends you an MP3. How do you play it exactly, right? Especially if it's an audiobook that's ten hours long. To, to remember where you were and getting all the metadata in there, it's it's not easy. Um, in the old days, if you had Apple iTunes, remember, and I used to do oh, things gosh. like this. It's like you could do an MP3. <laughs> yep. You could put it and it would be there, and you could see it. Um, I may still have some um, uh, gray market uh, '90s hip hop still in uh, MP3 form on uh, things in, in that were my originally 19th. found
0: on like LimeWire. <laughs>
2: Well, I don't want to be specific, but let's say they didn't fall off a truck, but they fell off of something. Um, and uh, into, my, into my, I think probably I had a, uh, what was that thing called? Uh, well, it was funny. We were watching, um, well, it was a Moneyball thing, but some of the fun of Moneyball is like the 2003-ness of the production design. <laughs> yes. And I think it's Carlos Pena, it's one of the players, is, is rocking an MP3 player as he's listening mm-hmm. to music. It's like, it's one of these little just digital sticks. I think there was like, it was before the Zune. It doesn't matter. No one cares. But um, you could get stuff on there easier than you can get an MP3 file that's 10 hours long on your phone right now, which is wild to think about. Um, that even has to mention the phrase zip file um, break, makes me want to break out and hide.
0: <laughs> right. In the year of our Lord, 2023. I mean, just
2: the, I thought we outlawed zip files. <laughs> I prefer to talk about a different acronym. M- NFTs as an acronym for digital stuff don't make me as nervous as saying, well, I have to deal with zip files. Um, so,
0: the number of authors who are willing to deal with that is small, and the number of listener readers who are willing to deal with it and capable of dealing with it is even smaller. So. Yeah,
2: right. it, and that, that's what struck me about this, because Doctorow and Sanderson are very interested in independence, right? Mm-hmm. As creators, they have the healthy, in Sanderson's point of view, skepticism, and in Doctorow's, I think, hostility even towards big tech companies, which is different than technology, because the promise of this stuff was more options, more freedom. And we're still, we, Audible is more, that's what we're saying, Audible is more restrictive, takes a bigger cut than a bookstore that existed since 1740 or something like that. Like, how did it become where it's more restrictive and more expensive to distribute an, a book, even in a different form of audiobook, than it was to do a print book 300 years ago? I guess it speaks to the power of brand, right? Because if people know what Audible is and you get them locked in, and I'm guilty of this as anybody, the switching costs aren't worth it, right? It's just I, all my books are there. They're still the cheapest to buy, even with my stupid it's, membership thing, which I rail against, but it's 12 bucks versus 25, Rebecca. <laughs> I'm a human. You
0: know, I think it's the power of brand and the power of being platform. the first yeah. platform yeah. and being the first mover when yeah. the second, third, fourth, and fifth movers come way, way. later. It
2: was a land grab. It was like, who? Where do I get my audiobooks? And, Audible. It's a good name, and it's a land grab. And then uh, and Amazon bought them and did all the was, Amazon stuff on top of it.
0: Right, and it was that's really different from what happened with eBooks. Like Amazon did move first with eBooks, but Barnes and Noble came hard no. behind it and then we saw you know indies experimenting with it kobo is out there doing things there wasn't like a multi-year giant gap where it was the only way you could get ebooks was amazon the other digital players came pretty quickly but audiobooks in any meaningful way it's I, I'm pretty sure, and it definitely felt like there was mm-hmm. a big gap where it was just audible for a really, really long time. And the longer that the second mover takes to to really get out there, just the more entrenched people become with the first mover because they're the only option. And then you're talking not about grabbing people who haven't joined an audiobook thing yet. You're To do anything significant, you've got to convert people who have already become members in mm-hmm. one ecosystem. Right. And Amazon's ecosystem is so robust and it has so many tentacles into so many parts of consumers' lives, that it's the, probably the most difficult to get someone to convert to another service when they've already yep. been inside Amazon, where they can get that same thing.
2: And, so and that, the only reason to do it is like squishy Amazon feelings companies. reasons, right? right? Or like, yeah. well, I'm going to, you know, throw my drop in the ocean of anti-capitalism by going to a different multi-billion dollar publicly traded <laughs> company. I'm like, have fun with that right. as an argument. Let
0: me buy my ebooks on Apple because yeah. of reasons.
2: yeah. Yeah, Yeah. my my virtuous move is to go to (laughs) Spotify, which is a seventy-five billion dollar company.
0: Right. And then you're playing the game of like Spotify platforms some people you might not like. So how do you feel about that versus Amazon's politics? Like there's you know, we we say it internally with our staff when we're trying to figure out platforms that we can be on and that we can use or that we have to use to be competitive in what we do that like there is no pure platform. And that's not truer than it is with Amazon. But how impure and what kind of impurities are you going to take on to go somewhere else is just part of the math, especially when something is just as entrenched and as convenient as Amazon's ecosystem is. I'm glad that people are fighting this battle and having this conversation. Mm -hmm. I think it's very, very slowly bubbling up to consumers. Like There are just a a small pool of people inside hardcore book nerds who really care about this stuff, and it's got to get way, way bigger and way more familiar to general consumers. This is just not a problem consumers are going to solve.
2: They're not They're not going to solve it. They're not going to solve it. I guess, just to, just to kind of get out on this, I do wonder, a side point, I've thought about this before, I don't think I ever mentioned on the show. I think it's smart, I don't know if it was an intentional decision or just how it happened, that Audible stayed... It didn't become Amazon slash audiobooks, right? Which is kind of right. how Barnes and Noble does it, or Apple, or other mm-hmm. places. Like Audible seems to have its own team, its own company, kind of like Zappos, right? Which isn't which is an Amazon company mm-hmm. that's focused on doing the thing it does. So it's iterating on the audiobooks experience, and investing in the brand and the platform. And say what you will, and I say it a lot about it. It works. They've got it all does. the books. They've got Amazon originals. It plays. It's fast. The player's really good. Your library is there. Um, you get good deals. You, you Again, f- forgive me for the sc- membership thing again, but and as a user experience, it still is the best. It's just mm-hmm. for selection and everything else is the best. And I wonder if that's because they were like, I'm the CEO of Audible or I'm the CMO of Audible and we're focused on growing Audible and not being an afterthought in like Barnes & Noble's whatever. Business because that's what it feels like to Barnes and mm-hmm. Noble or even to um, Apple. Well, we shouldn't talk. We know some things about Apple. Apple, especially, does some things like they're, they're a trillion dollar company, but not, you can't care about everything, right? And they're not set up to have these little federated states where it's like they're going to hammer and hammer and hammer on their thing, which is one reason I think Libros has gotten more traction in Bookshop too, where they're not afterthoughts of something else. They're the right. thing. Like that's our business. So we got to get good at this. And Audible's really the only one. Right, Spotify, even them, Spotify, audiobooks to them is an afterthought. That that's really music um, yeah. at this point. So there's something to be said for if you're gonna beat Goliath as a David, you ca- it can't be your moonlight gig. You can't moonlight right. as David. You can't moonlight as David. Moonlighting is David is a good show title. Good show title. Uh, while we're on the audiobook tip, you want to talk about ads in Audible Books? Yeah. Except that No thank you for me personally, but...
0: <laughs> right, well, you have a membership plan, so God you're help fine. me, do I ever. Uh, Lord the <laughs> mercy. So Audible is testing advertisements in audiobooks for non-members right now. It's a limited test. um, So it's ad-supported access, and it's also a limited set of Audible titles. Uh, There's an FAQ on the Audible website that's like, why am I hearing advertisements in my Mm -hmm. audiobook? Um, They're conducting the test now, they say, just because they're dedicated to continuously optimizing what they deliver. And they are. That's very true. Audible is... very true. This is an audiobook company. They exist to do audiobooks. That is all... They think about, uh, they're featuring beloved audiobooks, well-known podcasts and audible originals. They said providers whose titles are included were given the choice to opt in or opt out of ads and that a total of ads can be uh, a total of eight ads can be heard within a 24 hour period, regardless of the title. It doesn't get any more. Yeah, that is interesting. It doesn't get any more specific than that. So, uh, and I also have an audible membership because you're, you're stuck. Um, that uh, what I'm wondering is like if you're listening to your audiobook for three hours, how many ads do you hear? Yeah. How and- do they
2: do that right? Because they can't be like, well, it's hour 21, they're ready for their seventh <laughs> ad.
0: Right. Like are work. there right and the way like the way podcasts work is we put markers in at certain yeah. spots in our show so everyone hears the ad at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. 15 minutes in here's a marker. So is it markers at particular time spots in the across these audiobooks, or is it for every so long that you've been listening, you get yeah. an ad? Or are they trying to serve every user a certain number of ads each day or each listening session? Like how smart is this system? Because I would believe that Audible has the capability to create a pretty smart system trying to optimize the number of exposures that they
2: get to
0: these ads and how they're going to do it for each listener could be pretty fancy with the kind of AI technology that they have. Or it might be pretty simple. Who knows? They don't Mm -hmm. tell us that here. My biggest question is, is this about generating ad revenue or is it about annoying people enough that they buy membership plans (laughs) to avoid Uh, the ads?
2: Well, let me pick up on the first thing you said about how this experience would be. My guess is Audible has all the data that there is to have about individual and then also aggregate Mm -hmm. audiobook listening experience. You know, for people that listen to audiobooks at all, how many, What's how how does it look their average listening session per day? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to guess if you listen for an hour, you're going to get all eight ads in that hour. It's going to be like this show. We have eight spots. There's not always an ad in all those spots, but there's eight markers where an ad can go. We go for about an hour. That seems to be about the industry standard for podcasting at least. If I were Audible, I'd kind of read that putt. Okay, maybe it's two hours. Maybe people listen to longer on audiobooks just because it's longer, right? You can't listen to an eight-hour podcast if it's only one hour long. Um, but you're not going to be in hour 20 of your 24-hour period getting to – it's not going to be amortized over the 24-hour period. Let's put it that way. Will they right. customize it for individuals? If you're the kind of person that sits down to a long session every day, will they spread it out? I don't think so. You're going to get You're going to get eight ads in the first hour of listening. I would bet a substantial sum of money. On that, the second thing is, the ad-based membership plan for streaming services has become in vogue of late because of Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a couple things. There's an ad-based plan for non-members only. Well, that doesn't say it's free necessarily, because Netflix's ad-based plan isn't free. It might just be that it's three bucks and you get one credit. I don't know. Maybe maybe it is free, but it's a limited set of titles. Titles that the people aren't buying, right? They're not going to cannibalize The Wager by David Grand, which I just started today, for example. It's not out yet, but anyway. Uh, oh, look at that. Humble brag. Wow, that was awesome <laughs> for me. Um, uh, so I, I think that's part of it. It's like, how can we get more money out of listenership and then grow the audience? Because some people will convert. Yeah, It'll, it, it could be the freemium situation. Get them in for free to listen to a hot audiobook they want to listen to or just an audiobook they want to listen to. And It's better to get a few pennies from someone than zero dollars, because some people are never going to subscribe for the full freight or right away. That's just not how it's going to happen. My question is, what's the business model? Because what CPM? CPM? What kind of price are they getting for these ads, and how are they going to split that with the publisher? From an, from an Audible original, I kind of get if they've bought the rights to, you know, whatever these Roxanne Gay short stories are, or something like this. Or just looking at some of these Audible originals coming out, I'm assuming they bought those. Those are work for hire, so they give someone ten thousand bucks, we produce it, go away. You don't get royalties on that. That's just how I assume. That's how Netflix operates. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know if people know this, but it's different than the studio system where they get points. Like the dude who did Squid Game, he's not getting a bunch of points on all the on all the um, views or minutes per view because that's not how it works. I would assume something like this is similar, but you're not going to get $15 worth of ads out of one listener of um, Dumplin' by Julie Murphy. <laughs> no. Not going to happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, it the, it just can't work. It just can't work that way. I think this is really interesting precisely because Audible has so much data about people's listening habits, yes. and also that podcast advertising is so robust and seems to be like just pretty healthy among Mm -hmm. the ways that internet users and digital technology users engage with advertising. Like partially there's no way to block podcast ads the way that there is to just put an ad blocker on your web browser and prevent yourself right not yet from seeing banner ads. But the that means that folks who listen to a lot of audio content, who listen to a lot of audio books and podcasts, Mm -hmm. hear a lot of ads in their podcasts. They're used to hearing them. And the most recent podcast, like big big study that comes out every year I cannot for the life of me remember what it's called <laughs> it's not hot pod but there's a big like annual yeah I don't thing remember. just came out a couple Doesn't of matter. weeks ago showed that like almost half of people do actually listen to their podcast ads and find them to be relevant to themselves. Some of this also has to do with how good targeting has Mm -hmm. gotten. But if you're trying to move audiobooks and you know that some people are averse to a membership plan or to paying the fees for audiobooks that are high and that we have talked about here (laughs) ad Mm -hmm. nauseum. This is a creative putting together of some pieces of maybe since they're used to listening to ads inside podcasts, people will listen to ads inside audiobooks. Sure, it's a book, not a podcast, but the experience can be yep. very similar. And yep. maybe the differences are not significant enough when to make a difference to people or to matter to people who are just trying really to avoid paying the high price of an Audible membership or the really high price of buying audiobooks as one-off products. Um, So I I think that's smart recognition here. And interesting to think about, like in my own use cases, I hear ads in the podcast I listen to all the time. How would I feel if, you know, somebody broke in between chapters of Florence Williams's heartbreak? Would that be worth it to me for avoiding the price? Would I not care? Can you fast forward through them the way you can fast forward through podcast ads? It's a lot of...
2: Interesting yeah, stuff. That's here. interesting. I, I would guess not. I mean, I think kind of like when you're watching Hulu or something, there's a timer that you got to right. sit through um, because it's also pr- presumably going to be on the Audible app. One of the things about podcasts is they're RSS-based. You're basically just getting MP3 files with some tech on the backside, but there's really no affordance for insert arbitrary 30 seconds that they have to listen to, right, in, in this right. in this particular situation, which I think is all to the good for podcasts. But I think you're you're right. There's something to, to say that there's sort of... Podcasting and the ad and the monetization strategy of podcasting has sort of moved the overton insertion point, I <laughs> guess, for the for people's mm-hmm. willingness to hear ads and audio content. Because you're not people aren't using listening used to listening to an audiobook. And I have to say myself, my first thought was I wouldn't, but I was like, well, I already pay for one. If I could get a book that I'd have to pay another credit for that may cost between eight and twenty-three dollars, depending on what the promotions department for audible feels like at any given moment. <laughs> Maybe I would. I don't know. It's 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 conceivable. Uh, the monetization I don't understand because even if you're getting very premium CPNs in the podcasting world, let's say it's fifty dollars per thousand listens. So back of the envelope math for those of you who may care. If you don't, well, here we are. Um, <laughs> you you know a very very good amount to get as a creator, say for podcast ads, is like $50 per thousand downloads. So think of that download as essentially one person listening to it. So each one of those spots is essentially worth, each one of those listens at that price is $0.05, right? Right. So if I'm getting eight in a 24-hour period, that's $0.40, okay? If I listen to an eight-hour audiobook one hour a day, and I get all the ads, so now I'm looking at eight times 40, that's $3.20 yeah. and that seems to be kind of the best case scenario. Like that's kind of you're getting a CPM, you're getting all eight ads for all the audiobook. That's $3.20. And I don't know if anyone out there has looked at an Audible membership recently. You're not buying credits for that. I saw a deal recently you could buy 24 like a, a full year membership and even if that price was like at 9.50 per credit, oh, I did the math. That's a lot. <laughs> I have that's no triple.
0: Doubt you did the math.
2: <laughs> that's triple, right? So <laughs> There's got so, – somehow with these particular audiobooks that Audible is going to make available to the advertising side, they're going to have to get them cheaper. Mm-hmm. Th- they have to be theirs. they have to have some, some special deal. Maybe because I could see this happening, right? So Nicole Chung's um, A L- A Living Remedy came out. Maybe there'd be an interesting marketing play to make her first book available f- to listen with ads to move, you know, get awareness for this second book. Because probably that book's not selling that many copies right now, especially on audiobook, you know, five years later. That might be a good use of, well, Catapult. Anyway, that's the difference because her new book is Echo. (laughs) The last one's Catapult. Catapult has no I'm getting in the weeds. You You hear what I'm saying? we are
0: way in the weeds here.
2: (laughs) But you hear what I'm saying about the cost situation has to be different. Mm -hmm. They have Mm -hmm. to get this audio to make available cheaper somehow. With Netflix, they own the thing, right? So there's like, they're more thinking in terms of the user, because they're they've already bought squid game you know they, they, they already bought stranger things they're trying to get how many pennies can we get for for having made that thing and the ad supported tier gets people into it that wouldn't afford it otherwise they wouldn't pay for it otherwise um, and so I, I think it's interesting but I don't know I, I, I feel like this won't be a thing just because of the revenue point of view yeah. Much like much like publishers don't want to make their eBooks a part of all you can eat reading services, they don't want to do this because it, it eats at their premium pricing. Yeah,
0: I, I think this is a hard sell for mainstream publishers. You know, the maybe the most interesting part of these very sparse answers to yeah. the Audible FAQ uh, is that the test features not just beloved audiobooks but well-known podcasts and Audible originals, and so some of that may be podcasts that. Audible is distributing but not exclusively Mm -hmm. producing. Some of them are probably just the Audible in-house podcasts, where the only place you can listen is Audible. And then they've got their Audible Originals, which are usually like short audiobooks that Audible produced and where you can only get those on Audible. And just the move to put ads into the Audible Originals might be interesting, how they're approaching their own podcasts versus podcasts that are on full RSS is interesting to see but that it's not just a test on audiobooks isn't interesting and sort of just raises some questions for me that i'm not even sure like deeply what those questions are but it Mm -hmm. seems that the performance and the complexity here is different for audiobooks because you're talking about having to make the economics work with publishers than it is with podcasts and audible originals unless it is just podcast or unless it's just audiobooks that are Amazon Audible exclusives or that Audible has produced themselves and there's not a list here of eligible titles mm-hmm. I I did some googling I couldn't find a list of where that might be they're probably not making one public if anybody listening to this is listening to audible audiobooks and you're getting ads in them because you 're not yeah. an audible membership member person, please let us know podcast at bookriot.com. i'd love to know like just some examples of what actually is in there would be really helpful
2: but like we 've seen with ebook deals, there is an appetite to discount yes titles for reasons digitally that's different than print because the economics are different so you know, I I could see it's something happening. It's just, but this, I'm just saying even maximally 320 Mm -hmm. is the most you're going to get out of someone. According to my calculations, maybe Amazon is going to gouge publishers that you have to, you have to advertise (laughs) your books. Anyway, not to say this thing. Not like they have any experience doing that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing. You'll only cross these blades once in a page-turning new tale of revenge strategy and so many lies. Best-selling Red Tower Books is releasing its next year's will read that will capture your imagination and keep you guessing until the end. May Corlin's Five Broken Blades tells an intricate high-stakes tale of five total strangers united in a plot that will test their strength, wits, and courage. Each has their reasons, all have secrets." But while it's easy to portray a stranger, it's not so simple to stab a friend or a lover, okay, in the back. Now these five blades must choose between vengeance and one another. Pick up five broken blades by Mae Corlin for a thrilling adventurous tale filled with risk, romance, adventure, and. Oh, so many lies. The relationships in it are complex and nuanced and involve everything from friends to enemies found in biological family and lovers and more. Thanks again to Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publishers of the smash hit Fourth Wing for sponsoring this episode.
2: Um, Let's see. Let's move along. I just want to mention it because I think if it happens, I've said this before, it will be a huge deal. And mm-hmm. all of the discourse around it will be enormous. Um, I've said on this show before that the looming specter out there in pop culture and the world of books is the Harry Potter franchise. And I don't mean the wizarding world that no one cares about that flopped. I mean, Hermione, Ron, and uh, the boy who lived. And there's a story that came out of Bloomberg. And we see these stories from time to time. And usually it's like someone clickbaiting. And it, when you find the landing page, it's some website you've never heard of. And this is Bloomberg reporting that HBO is nearing a deal for a Harry Potter reboot, which is seven, which would be seven. The, the language here is it would be a series per book. Um, and we typically don't cover, cover rolling things. I'm only going to say this because A, it would be a huge deal. But second, it would be a huge mess because rolling has made things worse for other people, but especially for people who care about Harry Potter writ large. And I don't know what this would look like. I, I really don't know what the cycle would look like here. I, I'm curious about the appetite. Now, Hogwarts Legacy came out as a video game. that did very well. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that studio did apparently was put a trans character into the game because Rowling herself didn't have much of a say apparently over the content over, except some basic stuff, which kudos to them and those developers that did that. Um, but there's a storm coming, Rebecca, in culture, and it's going to be this. And I just yes. wanted to put that out there.
0: Yeah, I think this is worth keeping an eye on. I would assume that David Zaslav, who's the CEO of Warner Brothers, and Casey Bloys, who's the, the chief of HBO, are aware of the concerns and criticism and problematic elements of J.K. Rowling. And if they do move forward with this, that's an indication of their level of concern or not about how big of an impact or how small of an impact that may have on viewership for this it's this is really complex it is going to be really messy and i think i'm feeling myself like bracing for a recognition that awareness of the issues with jk rowling is still very far outside the mainstream um and that of the folks who become aware of those issues willingness to like cut themselves off from a series that they loved or connected to, or that their kids loved or connected to might not be there. Like this does feel like a culture war flashpoint
2: mm-hmm.
0: or that it has the potential to be that. But I, I wonder if we inside the industry who have seen these behaviors and statements for rolling for so long and who see a, a significant number of people voicing concern and upset and willingness to boycott rolling and to move against them, I wonder if our perception of how big that is, is skewed by having been inside it. Um, it could be that Zaslav and boys are making a big mistake here and have really underestimated yeah. the problem that they might be stepping into. That's very possible as well. Um, I feel like trepidatious <laughs> about what yeah. this might look like and also ready to be disappointed by its success. It's really possible. It also might be a big success. It might be welcomed uh, by folks who, don't care enough to, you know, move rolling out of their media consumption lives or who aren't aware of it. And that's.
2: Yeah, or maybe there's, you know, a Streisand effect potential where yeah, true. by having this being a thing out there, her really bad takes, bad opinions, harmful um, messaging and yeah. beliefs gets the kind of spotlight it doesn't get without this being out there it's, in the world. And, and it could elevate and change the conversation its own way. These kinds of things are hard to predict. Um, they are. Initial condition butterfly effect factories for I don't know how these things are going to go. And I knew at some point there'd be another Harry Potter something with those characters, Mm -hmm. not the Wizarding World stuff. I did not guess that they would reboot. It feels soon still. I'm getting older, so I know we talked about time compression. Can you believe it was only 24 years ago when the first book (laughs) came out or whatever? But the movies and those, I think those actors especially in those roles are so beloved it feels like a big ask to be like, let's go back to, to year one and we're going to re-roll on Hermione and Ron and, and, and Harry. Maybe how much affection for the series will port over to a new take on it? And what would that look like, I think, could be very interesting. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the bigger question to me is from, from Warner Brothers, which is owned by HBO Discovery or whatever they're flipping parent company is now, I can see why the pot of gold is so big for mm-hmm. this that you would hold your nose or you get your other messaging out or you make giant contributions to whatever or, I don't know. Can you can you do yeah. carbon offset for this in some way? I don't know that you can, but I could see can someone you, trying.
0: I think this is a reflection primarily of the preference that media has right now that especially tv and movies movie studios have for ip that people are familiar with everything is a cinematic universe Mm -hmm. there are 900 marvel things there's a million star wars takeoffs it was you know showtime and paramount are merged together and now there's all these Yellowstone spinoffs and there's going to be 14 different takes on billions and some reboots of Dexter and a whole bunch of other stuff like if you pay attention to what's happening especially in like premium cable TV landscape, mm-hmm. it's moves toward this. And if you're trying to compete in that landscape of like, well, let's get ourselves some familiar intellectual property that people are very attached to. There's nothing more ripe for it than Harry Potter. And even if the only thing that they've succeeded here in doing is preventing anybody else from yeah. including it for their premium <laughs> network. Warner Brothers and They HBO have some weird rights has, thing.
2: The, Warner yeah, Brothers has some weird rights situation. I don't know how, how long it goes in the future. But that's, and I guess like, I'll, that's I'll, a, I'll go. Yeah, go
0: ahead. I was like, yeah, the, like just money in television yeah. has been shifting away from, you know, quirky original products into big IP, big franchise and Harry Potter is just ripe for the picking there.
2: And I guess I'd go one further. I think it's people's preference for a franchise in IP. I don't think this, I think this is serving the thirst, right? I mean, you look yeah. at what movies come out and do well. It's like John Wick and Super Mario Brothers. Right. I mean, it's, we're on John Wick 4 and Super Mario has been around since 1986. Dungeons and Dragons very well. That's mm-hmm. IP. Like, mm-hmm. it's hard out there for, for a struggler. And I'll give HBO credit there. They, they do some of our favorite stuff that's weird. Yes. Like, somebody somewhere. No one's, Apple's not making that show. Right. Hulu's not making that show. Netflix isn't making that show. That's like a weird. That's mm-hmm. like the literary imprint of um, PRH. <laughs> it is. They still do that it kind is. of stuff.
0: It is. They they do still do that stuff and they're underwriting it by having, by having this, this other big stuff. Yeah. yeah, this is I think the echo chamber right now is this is what consumers are showing they're interested in and comfortable with. So production studios are making more of that and that means mm-hmm. that it's increasingly that's what's available if you're a person who's going to the movie so you're more likely to watch this and then you know you're just in that cycle for a while but this is also a product i think of peak stream of, of like streaming having peaked and been too diversified and now we're seeing seeing yeah. contraction in that where the streamers are merging discovery and warner brothers are coming back together you've got paramount coming together with showtime and folding in like right. to, A bunch of other stuff where instead of having like a separate CNN streamer and a separate Paramount one and a separate HBO one, folks don't want to pay that much. The like huge amounts of money where anybody could pitch a streaming series and get it produced and see how it goes and get get, get at least a few viewers is just not the landscape anymore because the, these companies are being more conservative they're taking more careful bets and if you're going to place a bet on a media property that you think you can produce and get people to watch harry potter is a pretty good bet
2: i mean if you gave me every ip to choose from and i could wipe away all the baggage that comes with it which you can't but yeah. just from a right. just from an exercise this is my dr- number one draft point. of course and i'm a huge star wars fan i'm a huge lord of the rings fan i, li- I like all of it actually uh, dc i could give or take i like batman though but like, give me anything, I, I'm taking Harry Potter, I'm taking it number one, and some mm-hmm. of it is untapped potential, right? Because there's only been the seven books, where, I know that sounds like that sounds wild to say there's only been seven books, but you look at Star Wars, there's been like 90, Mar- I don't know, it's not 90, but like 30 Marvel <laughs> so movies. So many. I've watched like four Star Wars TV shows in the last two years, when I went mm-hmm. like 16 years as a kid with bupkis. Um, I was reading novelizations of Return to the Jedi, like an animal, um, to get my Star <laughs> Wars fix back then. So... From 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 a a monopoly bags point of view, it's clearly the thing to do. Mm-hmm. Now, your principles are only principles unless you cost you something. That's a lot of cost. I I don't know. That's why I'm that's why I'm putting it here just to say this is yeah. w- interesting. And we don't cover Rowling in a in a real sort of just the text, ma'am, kind of way because you can't. I don't think that's responsible no. to do. But we do want to cover like that sort of meta discourse about it because I think it is super interesting to see. Um, whether or not it matters and how, how can we be a part of, like, championing for what we believe in but also cover the the conversations that are going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's not easy um, to do. Anyway, um, I if she could just, if she just turned it around. You know, it's like sometimes yeah. when people go on publicity for a new movie, they, like, retcon, like, their old beliefs or something. <laughs> if she were ever going to do it, this would be the time to do it. I, I don't have any hope for that. Um, Frontless Foyer, real quick, you want to sh- anything yeah. you want to shout out?
0: I do. Well, I want to shout out, you mentioned it earlier in the show, A Living Remedy by yeah. Nicole Chung. Read that over the we weekend. We both read that.
2: Do you want to spend a minute on that? Yeah, let's I talk you about something it. About, or I DM you something about this.
0: <laughs> it's and you good, agreed. But you is, agreed. Yeah. yeah. I think the, So the official take is, it's good, but man, it's a downer.
2: Oh, it um. is a bummer. <sighs>
0: It's, I think the, the log line I read for it in someone else's coverage is that it's an indictment of the American healthcare system. It's a memoir of losing both of her parents at yeah. different times and what those losses felt like. Um, the story of her father's living with diabetes and like the, the, her family was poor, often paycheck to paycheck or not even paycheck to paycheck, had intermittent access. Health care. Her father had diabetes and did not receive consistent care for it, um, died as a result of complications connected to that lack of consistent care. It's heartbreaking. And one of her friends tells her at one point, like, this is a very American story. Um, the story about her mother's death is a little bit different. Um, they're not able to be together as her mother is dying because it's early COVID also heartbreaking, also partially a product of how America responded or failed to respond to that. Man, her writing's beautiful and so thoughtful, and she taps right into what are very painful experiences. And certainly a lot of people in this country can relate or have experienced it themselves or have lost someone watching Uh, that person die as a result of Insufficient Access to Healthcare, man, it's a tough one. I I don't know who to recommend it to because this is a hard book to read.
2: For those of you who have listened to First Edition, it appears on our Knockout Contenders. We say some things about it, and I hadn't read it at that point. Um, No, me neither. I listened to it on audio. Um, And I think the thing, if I retconned that take, it'd be, it's too flippin' sad, Rebecca. I mean, and it's Mm -hmm. also sad, and like I don't think it's... Sad in a a year of magical thinking, or I'm trying to think of some comps like that have become it books. Year of Magical Thinking or um, When Breath Becomes Air, right? Those are it books of of a different, I mean, I don't know of a given month, but they became bonafide stalwart hits. Paperback favorites. They're on paperback favorites probably Mm -hmm. to this day. There was a certain grace and elegance to them that I don't think Chung has any responsibility to do. This is unflinching. And I don't think I'm sticking around for the sentence level work in a way that maybe yeah. with Calenthe or Didion I might be, or some other things going on. It's 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 powerful and immediate and personal and hard. And I was, yeah. I was like, I can't really recommend. Who am I going to recommend this? Someone who's just had someone die? That doesn't seem the right. right. No. I'm just going to parachute in someone's it's... normal, like things are going fine, life with this. I'm not going to do sure. I'm going to do that either. No.
0: Yeah. I think. Without spoiling where this lands in our knockout conversation, I said I thought it had potential. And before I read the book, I did think it had potential to reach like a book club crowd who wants to read the kind of stories that I think of Nicole Chung as writing. And certainly her first memoir did reach that crowd. Mm -hmm. It's about, And you can tangle with a lot of that stuff in conversation about identity and race and how our understandings of race have evolved in the last couple of decades as Nicole Chung comes of age and has written about it. I don't think you're taking this to book club. I don't know who you ask to read this very difficult, unflinching book. I do think it's awards fodder because yeah. of the unflinchingness, and, and that's very well-deserved, will be very well-deserved if she gets nominations or wins awards for it. I had an interesting accidental moment of compare-contrast because right before I read it, I read um, what looks like Bravery by Laurel mm. Breitman, which is also a memoir about losing a parent. And I only read these back to back because they came out around the same time. And I kept seeing what looks like bravery popping up in recommendations from folks who have similar taste to mine. And Braitman writes about losing her dad to cancer in the 80s, sort of a long protracted process and how she didn't realize until she was well into her adulthood, well into her thirties, how that had impacted her and really stalled her emotional development as a person. And then what she does to, you know, sort of try to heal eventually. Mm And, and how different she is by the time that her mother is diagnosed with a terminal illness and they want to have a much more intentional and open conversation about death and dying at that point. And that book really has like, it is also very difficult. I had tears in my eyes a bunch of times reading both of these, but it has a warmth and a life affirming quality that, uh, that like you leave with a life affirming feeling. And that's, that's as you were saying, you
2: really don't with a living room. Yeah.
0: And, and as you were saying, like it's not a requirement or anything that Nicole Chung no. owes anybody. No, she's telling a difficult story, and she has every right to tell it. It's just harder to sell a story about something so sad that doesn't have like a redemptive moment at the end. And the fact I mean, and that it, the there's reality is a little
2: is, something, yeah, but it's ahead. it's pretty thin gruel at the end of. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for my taste, I mean, yes. I don't want to spoil it, but. I don't yeah, know. I, I, it, it's, it's well done. Um, it's just, do I want to spend. I guess I'm glad I read it. Most thing I'm glad I read, but like mm-hmm. the next thing is passing it on. That's the next threshold for people. And I, I would find it pretty hard to pass on. Yeah, uh, that's
0: where I landed else. on it as well. Um, and I felt like I left. I don't want to create false competition between these books because mm-hmm. like, I do think that both of them have many things to recommend them. And I'm glad I read both. But I left what looks like bravery, feeling like I had some new insight into how I might consider those conversations and decisions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have aging parents. I felt like I gained some perspective on how I might approach those moments through learning about how Breitman approached her own. Right. that's not what nicole chung is setting out to do so it's not that she has like failed as a writer or failed me as a reader and not providing it but it is just a different way to leave a book than i left a living remedy which again is beautiful and really bold and powerful she's doing a brave thing by telling this story with as much anger as she's willing to tell it um Mm -hmm. and it's it's also well earned but it's really
2: difficult yeah Um, yeah anything else
0: yeah, I read House of Cotton over the oh, weekend. Right.
2: Well let's talk about that for a minute too. <laughs> Did you read it too? Yeah, I think I, I said in because um, it also appeared on my um right, right. power ranking. I put it on there because I had read it and I, I was like, I need okay. a reason to talk about this for a minute. What a weirdo book. I loved I mean yeah. Loved it is maybe wrong. I'm glad to have read <laughs> it. It's a weird mess. It's <laughs> so weird. And it has two one one if not two of the more memorable like literary scenes I can remember. Can I talk about this without spoil It's hard to Hmm. <laughs> what's on the Do you have it in front of you like what's on the jacket copy because do we even know what the job is that the cotton company asked the main character to do? Is that something that's Yeah, they known?
0: Yeah, so the synopsis actually <laughs> This is really good timing because, and at, at the post roll of this episode of the podcast, you can hear an excerpt. Oh, is that of the right? Oh, I book. didn't know
2: that. That's so funny. Okay.
0: <laughs> Which I only know because I record those <laughs> previews, but I was like, oh, how, what funny timing. I just read this book. Uh, so, yeah, the jacket copy is that uh, Magnolia is a 19 year old black woman in Tennessee. She's working a dead end job at a gas station. She has just lost her last surviving relative and her grandmother. And she. And Doing normal by, things
2: on dating apps? Doing totally normal yeah, things yeah. on dating apps? she's got yeah. some
0: habits. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's approached by a slick. Looking white guy, who by the way, his hands are covered in blood when they meet. Uh, when he comes into her gas station, Can we who wash tells her hands
2: th- a little professional decorum. I don't know what Ro- Robert right. Cialdini says in persuasion about blood on your hands, but I'm guessing he's saying less the better. That's I think he washes
0: note. them. He he washes them before they talk. But yeah. the first time she lays eyes on him, he's covered in blood. Cool. Uh, who asks her to, uh, if she's ever considered being a model? It's not and what you want. so she she believes that she's going to like a studio for a modeling job and she follows the address and discovers that it is to a funeral home. Uh, and the jacket copy does give away that she will be, okay. um, impersonating dead or missing people to help their families heal from their yeah, loss. Okay.
2: Good. Well, then I can say a couple of those impersonation sequences are, <laughs> oh, unlike okay. other thing I've read before, <laughs> it's worth the price of it, the ticket just for those scenes. I would say. A
0: of yeah, this was. I didn't realize it was her debut novel until oh, I was I like well into it and started googling, and I was like, okay, this is a very strong debut. Talk about bold Monica Bershirears just comes out of the gate with like you want to get weird, let's get weird. Yes. It is deeply weird. I really really liked it. I'm glad I read it. I also don't know who the hell you recommend it to unless you know them well enough to be like, okay, this is weird, but I promise it's worth the hang.
2: Yeah, I think I think at least you could do that if like if you're worth, if you're in there if you're in for some strange, um, yeah you could come with this. Uh, yeah'm I'm, I'm, it's a it's an auspicious debut. I'm gonna be curious to see if it does anything because it's memorable, right? Um, if there's a critique of literary fiction, well, there's many, but there's a certain blandness and sameness <laughs> mm-hmm. to them. This is <laughs> not, not that. so. <laughs> That's not what this is.
0: Yeah, and I think you could. It's weirder than Jesmyn Ward, but you could give it to readers of Jesmyn Ward who can hang with stuff like your dead grandma shows up in yeah. rooms to talk to you and is maybe being uh, haunted by all the ghost of your dead fetus like there's just a lot there's right. a lot going on
2: there's a lot going on um yeah those are two things i read recently and i think i'll end it there because we're running okay. a little bit long yeah you can find links to first edition deep dive all the stories we talked about today if you go to bookriot.com slash listen go check out first edition why haven't you already if you haven't go do it it's just sitting there waiting for you um and we're gonna go talk about moneyball and you can also check out the patreon if you're interested in our moneyball conversation um Thanks so much, Rebecca. We'll talk to you soon.